So this is one of the most confrontational sections in the book of James. And it's really all about conflict. It really is. I mean, the theme about, of, of James that we've been talking about as we've been going through this little book is faith that works. In other words, faith that practically shows itself in how our life changes. And in this section, James wants to deal with faith that understands conflict. James wants to deal with this reality of conflict. Last week, Adam was talking about wisdom that's from above versus wisdom that's of the world. And, and there's a need for us to have wisdom from above because we do get in conflict. But for us to operate in that wisdom, for us to actually utilize that wisdom, we have to understand conflict itself. We've got to know where does it come from. We've got to know why is it here. We've got to know how we can conquer it. How do we overcome it? Because here's the reality. you got conflict. i got conflict. All God's people have. It's the way it works. There is no option that James gives us or the Scripture gives us where conflict ceases except that when we see Jesus face to face, except in heaven. This side of heaven, guess what we're going to have? Conflict. And we have to understand why it's here. We have to understand why we struggle with things. It's amazing how often people will come for, for counseling because they're conflicted. They're conflicted against somebody else in relationships, someone they feel like they shouldn't be conflicted with. They're conflicted within themselves. They feel like there shouldn't be this conflict within themselves. And this, they want to know what is the cause, where does it come from? This is what James wants to deal with. He wants to deal with it as pointedly and as straight as he can because this is, the, this is what... This is what a good surgeon does. A good surgeon will take a scalpel and not just kind of tap a little here and tap a little there and maybe cut where they feel. A good surgeon will make precision, accurate cuts to remove only what needs to be removed to save all that can be saved. And this is what James is going to do. He's going to cut into our hearts and show us why we have conflicts and how we can overcome them. James starts out by asking this question, where do fights, wars and fights come from among you? And he uses strong language. In fact, this section uses some of the strongest language in James. When he says wars and fights, he's including any kind of conflict that is there, but he's using an imagery, a military imagery on purpose. And I don't know if any of you here have experienced war. I mean, I, by the grace of God, I haven't up front experienced war. But I haven't had some friends that were in the military service and uh, some who went to like, say like Desert Storm back in the early 1990s. They came back and they were devastated. One of my good friends, his son uh, fought in Iraq. He was a, actually, he was a medic. And he came back an absolute mess, strong in the faith. He was strong in the faith before he went. He was strong in the faith when he came back. But war is hellish. Conflict is a horrible, damaging thing. And James is using this these, these kind of language to show that. He says, look, where do these horrible, damaging conflicts come from? Here's what he says. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that were within your members? Now, it's interesting, too, to recognize that when James is doing this, when he says, where do these wars and fights among you come from, who is he referring to? Who's the among them? The church. 
He's talking about within even the sphere of God's people, people coming together who are supposed to be coming together under God, wanting to seek God and worship God. Even in that context, there's conflict. There's war. There's hellish battles. And he says these things come from your desires for pleasure. Interesting, the word that he uses there for pleasure is a word that we get where we, from which we get the English word hedonism. You guys know what hedonism is? Hedonism is, a, is, is the philosophy that says the ultimate you can have in life, the ultimate experience is pleasure. That's hedonism. It's this philosophy. Very popular in the 80s with the glam rock crowd. Hedonism. Far be it from me to ever show you a picture of me as a glam rocker, but you can get the idea. Hedonism, just living for pleasure, carnal desires, what you desire. Now, understand this, James is not saying, listen, James is not saying that pleasure is bad. He's not saying that. The Bible does not teach that pleasure is bad. God's the one who invented pleasure. Pleasure is a good thing. The problem is pleasure becomes a bad thing when we make it a God thing. A good thing becomes a bad thing when we make it a God thing. When we want it too much, it's always wanting more that is the problem. That's the basis of hedonism. That's the idea there. I want more, more pleasure, more this, more that, and we're living for that, and that is the root of conflict. It's that desire for pleasure, pleasing myself. So even wanting to please ourselves in good ways, it's always wanting that and living for that. It's the problem. This is why he says, look at verse 2, you lust and do not have you murder and covet and cannot obtain. Well, interesting. The word for murder, it means murder. And you get this picture. It's almost as if James is wanting to think, are people actually killing each other in the church of Jerusalem? Do they get so angry that they actually plot each other's murders? Now, I don't think he's getting at that, and I'll, I'll say why in a little while. But he's still, he's using a strong language. He's saying, listen, this is what happens. You desire, you fight, and you war. Why? Because you have this heart that always wants more. And it is. It's our greedy, our envious hearts that cause conflict. This is why conflict continues, even among us as believers, because we're always wanting to please ourselves. And so we look at somebody else who seems to have more than we have, and we think, I want that. How come I can't have that? And we begin to judge them. And we covet things. You covet somebody else's house. You covet somebody else's vehicle. You covet somebody else's spouse. You covet somebody else's children, someone else's family situation, someone else's upbringing, someone else's position in the church. You covet, and what does that create? Conflict, both in, in yourself and with those people. But he also goes on. It's not just our, our envious hearts that cause conflict to continue, but it's what I'm going to call self-centered religion. Notice what he says here. He says, listen, he says, yet, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, this is what I, I'm calling the self-centered religion because here's the deal. Prayerlessness is an act of faith. It is. Because when you don't pray, here's what you're saying. I believe that my actions can accomplish more than God's actions. So I'm going to do instead of ask. That's an act of faith. It's a self-centered religion. I'm going to provide for myself rather than saying, God, what would you have me do? And you provide as you see fit. 
That's self-centered religion. Listen, he goes on to say, notice, he says, uh, you ask, when you do actually get around asking, you ask, you don't receive, and this is why, because you ask amiss, wanting to spend it on your own pleasures. That is also an act of faith, but here's it is, it's self-centered. You, you act as if, listen, you believe that what you want is better than what God wants for you. God, you got to give me this, I need this, it has to be this. Instead of believing that God is good and we can ask Him for anything that our heart desires and believe that if that's for our good, guaranteed we're going to get it. Self-centered religion causes conflict. This is, guys, why I have a particular distaste for what I see on religious television. Because it promotes this. Ask what you want. You're a king's kid. Get what you want. I am a king's kid, and he's the king, and what he wants is what I want, whatever that is. Self-centered religion. But honestly, also, he goes on to say, and he uses here super strong language, verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Now here he's, he's, he's talking about this idea of spiritual adultery. He's using really kind of Old Testament imagery, which makes sense. James is writing uh, he's, he's the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's writing in the very early part of church history. Not a whole lot of Gentiles. These people would have been familiar with the Old Testament very, really, really, really well. And so he's using this idea of spiritual adultery that's talked about through all the Old Testament. The book of Hosea specifically highlights this. It's the idea that we are committed to God. We are in a, in a covenant with God. It's, it's likened to marriage, but what we tend to do in our hearts and in our actions is stray. We tend to, instead of being faithful to God, loving Him in an exclusive way, we love all kinds of things in the same way we should be only loving God. Pretty heavy. And he uses this, this language, again, it's really hard to understand, and it, it, when you first read it, it's, it seems so shocking. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world, notice he says, makes himself an enemy of God. We're uncomfortable with this, aren't we? Can we be honest about that? Can we be honest that this kind of language in Scripture makes us uncomfortable? This idea that, that people could be enemies of God. Because we don't want to believe that. We want to think, no, God loves everyone like a, just a happy granddad in the sky. And God does love everyone, but he says, you make yourself an enemy of God. You put yourself against God. Now notice, I want to be really clear, he's not saying that, that it's wrong for us to have friends that are of the world. In other words, it's, it, he's not saying it's bad or wrong for us to have friends that aren't Christians. In fact, the Bible tells us we should do that. It would teach that we should pursue relationships with unbelievers. He's not saying that. What he's saying, listen, is what's dangerous is when we want to be friends with this world system, when we want to think like the world thinks, when we, want, we have the same goals and desires that the world has. We should think differently as believers. We should have different desires as believers. Yes, we have some of the same desires. Yes, we struggle with all the same temptations. Yes, we still struggle and fall into sin. But our heart's heart should be, I want what God wants. And when we don't want that, when we think, no, actually what I want is what the world wants, I just don't want to go to hell for it, when that's our mindset, God says, you're opposing everything I'm wanting to do in your life. 
And this is what causes conflict. This is where the conflict comes in. See, we have to get it through our heads, guys, that the problem with the horizontal, the problem with our relationships horizontally, is a problem with the vertical. It's because we get in conflict with God. It's because we don't deal with the conflict that we get, we have with God, that these relationships don't work. That's where it comes from. Now, the things that James is talking about, these may seem, they may seem really harsh, and maybe even some of you here are thinking to yourself, man, that seems a bit tough. I don't think Jesus is like that. Let's listen to what Jesus had to say. This is the Sermon on the Mount. James is echoing all the things that, G- that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. Check this out. It should be on the screen. Matthew 5, Matthew 7, and Matthew 6. Listen to this. Jesus says, you have, heard that, uh, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. In a sense, look at what Jesus is doing. He's equating murder with hatred. When I was in Bible college, there was this guy there. I, I can't even remember his name. This is because it's like 27 years ago or something. So I was in Bible college, and there was this guy there, and um, he was always in the library, and when he wasn't in the library, he was walking around the woods. It was this beautiful forested setting, and just with this beaming smile on his face, and he'd come in the library, and he'd just go, I just, man, I just love God. He's amazing. God, don't you just love God? He's amazing. And me and my friends would go, yeah, we love God, man, yeah. He'd walk away. I remember one time he walked away, and I, go, and I looked at my friend, and I go, I hate that guy. Now, I didn't really hate that guy, but we were expressing the uncomfortableness that we felt. We were just like, ah, I don't really want to be around that guy because he really loves God. And what does that expose? I don't. Not the way I'm supposed to, at least. And this is the thing. What happens is that we, we think the problem is that person. Or even sometimes we think, well, the problem is always me. But we're always looking at me and thinking, well, well the problem is not just you. The problem is you before God. The problem is us before God. We're not right with the God that we need to be right with, and this is why we have problems with each other. The wisdom from above is what? It's first pure. It first looks to God to be purified. Conflict continues because we have these envious hearts. We practice a self-centered religion, and we have these worldly perspectives. We think the way the world thinks, and God's saying, no, this is the problem. This is why the church doesn't get on. This is why we have divisions and problems. This is why we don't deal with our conflict well, because we think our conflict is the problem of the other person. And it's not. Jesus goes on to say, notice he says, if you say, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? Encouraging people to pray just like James is, but pray the right way. He says, Jesus goes on to say, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one or love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Listen, you can't want what God wants and, let me rephrase that, you can't pursue what God wants for you and pursue what the world wants for you at the same time. They're two different directions. 
This is why you feel so torn inside. This is why I feel so torn inside. Because there's a part of me that says, I really want God, but man, I really want my own thing as well, but I really want God and I'm just getting so stretched. I feel like I'm going to tear in two. That's where the conflict starts. And that tension, that, ah, I'm pulled in two different directions means I'm agitated at anybody who would add to it. Anyone who would call me to walk with God more or anyone who would call me to the world more, I'd be like, no, you're just making it worse. It's your fault that I feel this way. No, it's my fault that I feel this way because I'm pursuing what I want, not pursuing what God wants. So that's why conflict continues. So how do we, what, what conquers conflict then? How do we end this, or how do we at least overcome this? How do we, how, how's this going to get conquered? Well, I love, I love what James writes here, right? He says in verse 5, Do you not think that the Scripture says in vain, or do you, I'm sorry, do you think that Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now, this is a really difficult uh, verse to translate. So if you're using like the, the New Living Translation, it says, something a bit different. It seems to be pointing the envy, not about jealousy of God, but the envy of the person. Um, most scholars believe that it should be translated a little closer to what this is uh, in, in the New King James, the idea that it's actually God who yearns jealousy for us. And that fits with Scripture. It fits the context and it fits with Scripture. And there is this idea that the Bible teaches that God is a jealous God. And this is a great thing to know. Look what it says in the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20, this is the kind of the beginning parts of the Ten Commandments. <coughs> God says through Moses, you shall know, have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself the carved image, any likeness of anything that's in the earth above or that is in the uh, earth beneath, of heaven above, earth beneath, and that, uh, or that is in the water under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, we see in Tennessee jealousy as a bad thing because often when we think of jealousy, we think of someone who's possessive, who doesn't let a person have their, kind of their own life. And, 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 and oftentimes, it can be a bad thing because oftentimes what, what, when people feel jealous, it can be people just wanting to control that person. It can be people just wanting to say, look, you should give me only your attention, nobody else. But when someone feels that way in a human relationship, in a horizontal relationship, if my mindset is always, you should only give to me all your attention, that's not me wanting to be loved, that's me wanting to be worshipped. That's sin, isn't it, if I want to be worshipped? Yes, it is. <laughs> if any of us want to be worshipped, that's sin. But when God wants to be worshipped, it's not, only, not only is it not sin, it's for our good. When God says, look, you should relate to me in a way that is exclusive. You should relate to me in a way that you relate to nobody else. That's a good thing. It's for our good. Now, this is, there's also even in human relationships where this kind of jealousy can be good. I mean, seriously, what would you think of me? Any of you guys here, any of you men here, what would you think of me if you came up to me and said, hey, John, so-and-so keeps chatting up your wife, Sarah. I mean, I listened once and I thought he's just kind of being maybe flirty, but then it's like he's really trying to come on, come on to your wife, Sarah. What would you think of me if I'm like, eh, that's all right. What would you think of me? You'd go, what kind of husband are you? Now, just for the record, if any of you chat up my wife, 
I may have to lose my position as a pastor and take care of things. But the reality is, you would expect there to be that kind of jealousy. I belong to her. She belongs to me. We have, there's an exclusivity to our relationship that should be protected. How much more with our Creator and Redeemer? And so when James is saying here, he's saying, listen, he's not quoting a scripture, but he's saying, isn't the whole tenor of scripture, isn't the whole message of scripture that we belong to God, that we're not our own, and that we should worship him as the one who loves us perfectly? And we should relate to him in a way that we don't relate to anybody else. And James is saying, do you guys not get that? And this is a great phrase. Look what he says, though, verse 6. But he gives more grace. Now, kind of going back to that analogy of me being jealous, if you were chatting at my wife, would you expect grace from me? Probably not, especially if you know my testimony. You wouldn't expect grace. You'd probably expect violence, and rightly so. But God gives grace. This is amazing to me. How do we conquer conflicts? What conquers conflict? This conflict of us when we should worship God, but we worship other things, and it causes conflict with Him and with others. What conquers that? Only the grace of God. Him giving more grace. See, guys, when we talk about God being a jealous God, we're not talking about God kind of up there going, how come you don't just bow down and worship me? I'm a megalomaniac. I need everyone to kind of make me feel good about myself. No, we're talking about a God who says, do they, do they, when are they going to realize how committed I am to saving them? When are they going to realize that my desire for them is good? When are they going to stop making false gods? This is why God gets angry. Do you realize God is angry at us when we do this? Do you know why? Because it destroys us. It puts us exactly where we're not supposed to be. This is why he says he opposes. We become enemies of his when he wants us to be his children. God gives more grace. Therefore, he says, and this is James quoting Proverbs 3.34, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Now, understand this. When James is saying here, talking about grace, this is what conquers the conflict. He's talking about not just the grace that says we're forgiven, but the grace that says you're wrong. Do you realize that's part of God's grace to you? If you're here this morning and you're going, come on, John, get to the good stuff. I'm feeling guilty. I want to not feel guilty anymore. Don't you realize it's God's grace that you, by God's grace that you feel guilty? If you're sitting there going, this is stupid, I don't want to hear this, that's scary. That's really scary. Because if you can hear this and kind of go, I don't care, wow, it's God offering His grace to you. But if you hear this and you're going, man, all right, I'm feeling bad. No, that's God's grace to you. God in His grace deals with us. God in His grace says, would you see where your heart is? Would you recognize where the conflict's coming from? God does that in His grace. And He says, listen, there's more grace where that came from. If you just humble yourself. Do you know what humility is? Humility is not, I'm so bad. Humility is going, I 
do not have what I need. That's humility. I don't have what I need, and I cannot produce what I need on my own. That's humility. It's not self it's not like self-abasement in the sense of, oh, I'm horrible, I have to put myself down per se. It's a recognition that you don't have what it takes. This is why Jesus says, if you want to follow him, you have to do, deny yourself. You have to recognize you should have no allegiance to yourself. Why? Because yourself cannot produce what you need. Only God can. But only, only can God do it. God is so willing. God is way more willing than you are to pour out his grace on you. God is way more willing. I think sometimes when we are asking God for things, especially when we're asking God for the grace to actually walk with him, I think especially when, when we've had a, maybe a season or a day or a week or whatever it is where we've, we know we're not doing what we should, we know we're not walking with God, and we think, oh, I'm so bad, and we're just so kind of, hesitant to go to God and say, God, I messed up again. I blew it again. I, I didn't do what you want me to do again. Instead of just getting it right with God, we kind of stew and we simmer and we kind of want to beat ourselves and feel bad. Why? Because we think God's up there going, you know what? Fine. You want to be that way? I don't need you. No. God's playing hard to get. No, keep asking. Uh, maybe, I'll, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll turn to you. Maybe I won't. That's, that's how we picture God. And yet, you know what really God is like? Come on, ask. Ask. Just, just repent and ask. He's waiting for us to come back. He has grace upon grace upon grace to pour out on us, and that alone is what can change our hearts. That alone is what can teach us how to deal with the conflict that we have. If we would just humble ourselves. Look what the Scripture says. Listen, Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Moreover, it says, the law entered that the offense might abound. That's God's grace. Here's the law to show you you don't have what it takes. That's God's grace. That your offense may abound. It's way worse than you think. Do you guys realize that? You are a far worse sinner than you realize. Do you understand that? If you think you're bad, you're not nearly as bad. You're not thinking nearly bad enough, I guarantee you. You're far more selfish. You're far uh, more uh, idolatrous and adulterous. You're far more... Uh, of, a, of a greedy, stinky, thieving, lying pig than you realize. And I'm telling you that because God loves you. <laughs> and he exposes that in us. Why? Grace. He wants to give us grace. But not only that, look what he says. But where your sin abounded, what does it say? Grace abounded much more. Grace. You're not going to end the conflict that you have horizontally or vertically by your good efforts. You're only going to end that conflict or overcome that conflict. It's only going to be conquered by the grace of God. Do you believe that? Do you recognize that? Because, guys, I, there's a part of me that wants to just stop here and not continue with the message because if you don't get that, what we're going to say here isn't going to make sense. And you're going to think, oh, John says that, but actually what the Bible says is i got to work harder. i got to do this. i got to do that. If I don't do all these things, then I won't ever fix my conflict. And what the Scripture is saying, what James is saying is here, unless you recognize the grace of God, that you need the grace of God to do these things, the conflict will never be overcome. That's the point. 
Not only does God have to give you grace so that you see your need, not only does God have to give you grace so that you can uh, uh, get past that need, but then God has to give you the grace to do the things that he's gonna call you to do. And the good news in Jesus is it's there for the taking. The grace of God is there for the taking. What, con- what conquers conflict? Only the grace of God. So let's get practical. Last 15 minutes, let's get practical, okay? So how is conflict then overcome? How do we overcome this conflict? We want to be practical with this. We don't want to just kind of go, okay, that's great in theory. How does this work in everyday life? How can we right now, before we leave this building, deal with the conflict? How can we understand it and deal with it? Therefore, James says, verse 7, submit to God. First step, submit to God. What it means to submit to God, listen, is not just to say, okay, fine, God, I'll do what you say. Because God's not after just our actions, he's after our hearts. Submission to God is us recognizing that it's a good thing to be under his good authority. God, it's good to do what you say because you're good. I'm going to submit to you. I'm I'm going to obey from faith. I'm going to obey from faith that you are good, you do good, you command good, and so I want to obey. I want to submit. Submit yourself to to God. That's the first step. Listen, if you don't believe that God is a good authority, He's one, the ultimate authority, and that His authority is good, if you don't believe that, you're going to remain in conflict with God and with others. Fact. Submit yourself to God. He says next, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now understand when, when, the, when James here, really anywhere in the scripture, when it refers to the devil, it's not trying to say that the devil himself, as in that, that angel Lucifer who rebelled against God, uh, that he himself is taking time to deal with you. The Bible does not teach that the devil is God's opposite. The Bible does not teach that the devil is some sort of all-powerful being like you know, God's the ying and the devil's the yang. The Bible doesn't teach that. It's bogus. God is the uncreated one, the only holy one. The devil is an angel, maybe parallel to Michael the archangel, who is in rebellion to God. But when the Bible refers to the devil, it refers to him and the hordes of demonic beings that followed him in that rebellion, whose whole goal is to make sure that you and I don't know God's love for us and don't submit to God's love for us. They know they're destined for hell. The Bible says Jesus said hell was created for the devil and his angels. They know that's where they're going. They want to take you with them. That's their goal. So they blind the eyes of the unbelieving. They, they trip up those who are trying to walk by faith. They lie to you. They lied to me. And guess what? The devil and his angels have been observing human behavior since the very beginning that there was a human history. And you know what that means? They know how to manipulate us. And so James says, listen, you don't have to submit to God, but you need to, to resist the devil. To resist means to stand against him. So like if you were to say, we're going to resist Hitler, it doesn't mean you're going to stand before Hitler. It meant you're going to resist the Nazi party. So to resist the devil means you're resisting demonic influence in your life, okay? To resist literally means to stand against. It doesn't mean to attack. It means to stand it means to hold your ground. 
See, here's what, the, here's what the, the, the devil and his angels want to do. Here's how demons lie to us. As believers, I'm talking about those of us who have been born again by the Spirit of God. We've put our faith in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return. We, we believe in him. All the things that we sang today, we believe in him. Those who believe that, here's how the enemy attacks you. He says, you're not really belonging to God. He tries to scare you out of that position. If you belong to God, your marriage wouldn't be as bad as it is. If you belong to God, you would be a better parent. If you belong to God, you would serve more in church. If you belong to God, fill in the blank. And he tries to push you out of your position. And what does God say? Stand your ground. Stand your ground. <clears throat> when I was a kid, a lot of you guys know that I got in a lot of fights and stuff. And I'm not the fastest. I'm quite slow. I'm not the most athletic. I'm a little bit uncoordinated. Fairly strong, but not super strong. But I didn't lose fights very often. You know why? I didn't quit. I'm not advocating violence. Please don't misquote me. Please don't clip this and put it on YouTube. Thank you. But the thing was, I would get in these fights, mostly because I had major issues, was in conflict with God, so I was in conflict with people all the time. But I get in these fights, and these guys would be stronger than me, faster than me, better fighters. But they'd get tired after five minutes. If you've been in a fist fight, you know it takes about two minutes before you're exhausted. And, and they'd be exhausted. And I'd be exhausted too, but I'd say, come on. And they'd be like, dude, it's over. I'm working you, or whatever, you know. No, come on. And they'd finally just say, I can't do it anymore. And when they gave up, that's when I'd pounce. I just didn't give up. That's why I won. Now, you don't have to pounce. God fights for you, but you know what you have to do? Stand. Stand. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, right? He says, stand therefore. And again I say, stand against the enemy, against the, the lies of the enemy. No, I'm not going to believe that just because I'm still an idiot that I don't belong to God. I believe that even though I am an idiot, God loves me and he's going to change me. He's changing me. And I'm going to stand. I'm going to stand. Yeah, you still sin, and we're going to talk about that in a second. But you need to recognize that you need to resist him. And guess what? You resist him, he will leave you alone. Bad news, he comes back, but he will leave you alone. Stand. Notice what else he says. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Now, this is not talking so much about proximity as it is talking about intimacy. It's not an idea like draw near to God means, okay, sit closer to the front. If you sit closer to the front, you're drawing near to God. You should sit closer to the front because it's weird everyone leaves these chairs open. <laughs> and also, actually, practically, this is kind of a total tangent, but practically, you know, if visitors come, this is the worst place for them to sit. It's horrible as a visitor to go all the way up front. So stop being so stinking selfish and sit in the front next week. I mean that. Come on. But no, drawing near to God means intimacy. It means, listen, it means that you desire to know Him. I want to know Him. Christianity is not an it. It's not a bunch of ideas. It's, it's Him. He's Christ. He's the Lord. He's God. We want to know Him. We want to draw close to Him. Listen, if you don't want to have fellowship with God, you're always going to be in conflict with Him. That's what He wants. God wants to have fellowship with you. You know the difference between fellowship and relationship? Relationship is a position. So I have five children, as you guys know. They're all born into my family. They are all my children. There's nothing they could ever do that would make them not my children. They are my children forever. Even if they disown me, they're still my children. 
But if they refuse to honor our home, if they refuse that, it breaks our fellowship. So if they want to come into our home and they want to do things that we would say, absolutely not, we don't do that in our home. Or when any of us does something in our home that we know we shouldn't do and there's not a willingness for us to ask for forgiveness and get things right, it doesn't mean the relationship ends, but it means the fellowship is broken. Now listen, is there anything that you can think of, humanly speaking, more painful than a child who doesn't want to have anything to do with their parents? Some of you guys might have experienced that, and I'm, I'm sorry if that's a trigger for you. I really am. I, I, I take that seriously. But it's a horrible, painful thing. Listen, you have to ask yourself something very seriously. If you have no desire for fellowship with God, are you actually in relationship with Him? Can you really end conflict with a God who saved you? Can you really remain in conflict with a God who saved you and wants to know you? Then draw near to Him. You want to deal with the conflict within, then draw near to Him. You don't have to do a bunch of stuff. You just draw near to Him. Stop ticking off the boxes. I, well, I do pray, and I do read my Bible, and I do serve at church, and I do hang out with other believers. Stop ticking the boxes. Draw near to God. Do you want to know Him? Do you come to church to know Him? Do you serve others to know Him? Do you pray to know Him? Do you read His Word to know Him? Or to just to tick off boxes? Because if you're only ticking off boxes, guess what's happening? You're still in conflict. You're practicing basically self-centered religion. No, Jesus, or James says, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. James would have known this too. Remember, James is Jesus' little brother. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? Seeing him and knowing, okay, yeah, he's perfect, fine. <laughs> and remember, they didn't believe that he was Messiah. Couldn't point out any sin, but didn't believe he was Messiah. He's just perfect older brother Jesus. That's who he was. And imagine when he finally sees the resurrected Christ and realizes, this is not just my older brother, my Lord and my God. And he thinks, how I've not ever drawn near to God who was incarnated in my home my entire life. If that's not a picture of churchianity, I don't know what is. Of people who just come to church, who just do the ticking off of boxes but never draw near. Guess what that means? You're still in conflict. I'm sure that Jesus and James probably got on well on the same football team and all that kind of stuff, but the bottom line is, wouldn't you love to have Jesus on your football team, by the way? That's another issue. But the, but the bottom line is, there was conflict until James drew near. And then here James gets really strict, man. I wonder if he's thinking back of how he treated Jesus when he says this. He says, he uses harsh language. This is the only time in all of Scripture, where sinners seems to be used to address believers. The only time. In fact, because of that, some people think that, that he's talking about just those who, who couldn't possibly be Christians in the Jerusalem church. I don't think so. I think he's talking to church people, some of whom are saved and some of whom are not. And he uses harsh, startling language to get their attention. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinner, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament. 
Mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Oh, I hate those churches that just teach doom and gloom. Yeah, you mean like James? Like James who says, stop being so casual about your sin. Deal with it. We get so hard-hearted, man. We get so hard that even among guys, Christian guys, th- praise the Lord, this didn't happen at all yesterday that I saw, but I've been around Christian believers and, 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 and brothers who, who are doing something and the conversation turns to lust. Next you know, people are laughing about stuff like, yeah, I saw this one girl, man. I'll talk, I was really sinning then. Ha, ha, ha. Really? Is that appropriate? Or ladies, it can happen with ladies too. I know I should submit to my husband, but he's a loser. You wouldn't submit to him either, would you? No, ha, ha, ha. Is that really cool? Yeah, I'm not paying any more taxes than I have to pay. Yeah, I don't want to report that, but no one does. You know, no big deal. I think I'm being wise as a serpent. No, you're in sin, and you need to Repent. I need to take it seriously. Let me ask you a real serious question. Have you ever, ever, don't, don't respond except in your own hearts, have you ever wept over your own sin? Have you ever wept over your own sin? Not just the consequences of your sin. I'm talking about that you recognize before God, you've thumbed your nose. You've spat in His face that you would have easily taken a spear and thrust it in his side. You would have easily crammed the crown of thorns on his head. You would have easily beat his back because that's your heart as a sinner. And then it bring you to tears because James is saying, this is what has to happen. We gotta deal with our sin. We can't play games. Guys, don't you understand that the same God who inspired let your, your laughter be turned to mourning said just a couple of verses before, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Do you remember that when Jesus told the parable of the, of the publican and the Pharisee? The Pharisee is supposed to be this man who, who is committed to God. We tend to think as church people, Pharisee is automatically bad, and it is, but don't forget, in their culture, they were seen as the holy people. They were seen as the ones that were dedicated to God. They were serious about their faith. They were serious about Scripture. They were serious about making converts. And that Pharisee says, oh God, thank you that I'm not like so-and-so. Thank you that I do all these great things for you. But the tax collector, who was seen as the wretch because he worked for the Roman government, wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat beat himself on the chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, guess guess which one went home justified that day? Guess which one got right with God? Guys, listen. Because Jesus has, has paid the price for all of our sins, past, present, even future. You know what that means? We should deal with our sin. Do you know why you're not overcoming the conflicts? Probably because you're not dealing with your sin. Remember what Jesus says? Jesus says, 
You guys should all know this. Even if you're completely unchurched, this is the first time you're at church, I bet you know this verse. Judge not lest you be judged. You guys have heard that before, right? Judge not lest you be judged. What does Jesus say? With the same measure you judge, it will be judged against you. And then what does he say? First take the plank out of your own eye. Then you'll be able to move, remove the speck from your brother's eye. You probably, and I, we probably do rightly see specks in our brother's and sister's eyes. But you know why we can't remove them? Because we got this big telephone pole sticking out of our eyes. And we don't go to God and lament and mourn and say, Father, have mercy on me, I'm a sinner. I want to be right with you so that I can help other people. I don't want people to go blind because of splinters in their eye, but I've got to get this beam out of my eye or I'm not going to be able to help anyone. Lastly, the Scripture says, James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Notice it says, humble yourself. This is plan A. Plan A is humility is your responsibility. You humble yourself. You humble yourself. Now, let me tell you something, because God is so gracious. If you don't humble yourself, you know what's coming? Humiliation. That's plan B. If we refuse to humble ourselves, you know what happens? God humbles us, and that ain't pretty. It's not pretty. One of the things that Adam and I try to do every time, every Wednesday, is confess our sins to each other, ask how we're doing, be honest about our sins. And you know one of the reasons we do that? Because we know if we don't deal with our sin and hold each other accountable to our sin, guess where it's going to be shouted from? The rooftops. And we have a stricter judgment. Humble yourself. But look at what God's promises. You take your responsibility, you humble yourself, what's God going to do? He's going to exalt you. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, I think it should be on the screen, I have to go a few verses to find or a few slides to find it. But Matthew 23, Jesus says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. What does it mean when God exalts us? Listen. John said this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called the children of God. Now, as you all know, I'm sure, the queen has her sort of summer residence here in Norfolk. In fact, we, uh, we know somebody who uh, is a police officer there. And, and we've never been asked to, to, to go anything special. We did get a discount or get some free tickets, I think, once. But um, I, I, can you imagine if this week I get a phone call and, and I'm asked to go not just to see the home, but actually have tea with the queen? Seriously. I know, that would never happen, but can you imagine me, loudmouth, bald-headed American, standing before the queen? And the queen doesn't just want to have tea with me. At tea, she wants to say, I would like to adopt you <laughs> into the royal family. You got the ears for it? So I'm thinking, I can adopt you into the royal family. You can be one of my sons. Now, if she wanted to do that, would that be an honor? Would that be an, an, an exaltation? 
How much more when the creator of the universe says, I want to adopt you. I want you to be my child forever. Humble yourself. What does he want to do? He wants to adopt you. Listen. People, please. I'm going to ask the music team to come back up. Listen. The conflicts that you have in your marriages, in your homes, at your workplace, in this church, those conflicts are rooted in our own hearts before God. They are. Listen, I'm not saying we should never conflict. Yeah, we have to conflict. It's part of living on this this side of heaven. It's part of even how God sanctifies us. Iron sharpens iron. It's good for us to challenge each other. It's good for us. I, I like it when I get challenged. It doesn't feel good, but I know it always does me good. Even when people are stabbing at me, it's a good thing because there's almost always a bit of truth in what they're stabbing at. But here's the problem. When we don't understand where conflict comes from, we don't ever overcome conflict the right way. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you.